man, it is good to start this new series. Philippians is my favorite one of Paul's letters. I love that it's the most joy-filled book in the Bible, as, as James's intro video said. Y'all turn with me there to Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. We'll be in Philippians till the end of July. There's a guy who was uh, sort of an antique expert, you know, one of these people that finds treasures in, in odd places, and he was in one of these little junk shops, and happened to find something he never thought he'd see with his own eyes. There was a, a cat eating out of a bowl in the, in the back corner in this little junk shop, and he recognized, even from a distance, this was, this was, this was ancient Chinese ceramic. He even knew which dynasty it came from. And he could tell, even at a distance, this was the find of a lifetime. This was priceless. And as he got closer, he just confirmed it. And he, had to, he thought to himself, I've got I've to play it cool, because if, if the shop owner, if I just walk up and say, hey, can I buy this dish? The shop owner is going to catch wind that it's worth something, and I'll have a negotiation on my hands. So he came up with a plan, and he went to the shop owner. He said, listen, um, I noticed the cat back there. This may, sound un- this may sound unusual. I know it's just an alley cat, but it looks exactly like the cat I had when I was a kid. And I loved that cat, and I would give anything for it. So would you, would you take $100 for that cat? And the owner said, well, I, I really couldn't sell the cat. You know, my kids would kill me if I did. And, the, and so the guy said, well, how about 500? You know, buy each one of them a cat of their own. And the owner said, I, I'm sorry, they would just, they'd be furious if I sold it. And he said, well, tell you what. And he reaches into his wallet. He hands him all his money, just puts it all on the table. He said, there, that's enough to buy them all their own cat and take them to Disney World. Now, is that enough? And the guy said, well, I guess so, if you want it that badly. And so he goes back, he picks up the cat, and just real casually, almost as an afterthought, he said, oh, you know, I really don't have anything to feed him in. Do you mind if I just go ahead and take this dish too? And the guy said, oh, no, that's from the Wang Dynasty. There's no way I'm getting rid of that dish. He said, the odd thing is, ever since I acquired it, I've sold like two dozen cats. See, everybody's looking for treasure. And sometimes it's found in a little junk shop, and sometimes it's found uh, in a contest of various kinds. You know, the treasure most of us want doesn't really have a dollar sign attached. We just want to be happy. We're not high maintenance. We just, want, we just want to be happy. We want to see our family happy. Is that too much to ask? I don't think so. I mean, there's plenty of happiness to be had in this world. When you hear a good joke and it's not about you... <laughs> When you see a good movie or when your team wins the big game, when you have your friends over to the house or you go on a nice vacation or when you get a raise at work or a loved one comes home for the holidays, happiness. But it never tends to last, does it? There's excitement too. There's all kinds of things to make our blood pump faster and our adrenaline shoot through the roof. That doesn't last either. There's a crash afterwards. And there's pleasure to be had all over. I mean, we as Americans, we're experts on finding pleasure. But sometimes pleasure comes with a cost. And it doesn't last either. What I want to talk to you about in this series is joy. I don't know if you know the difference between joy and those other things I just mentioned. There's nothing wrong with happiness, pleasure, or excitement. But they don't last. Joy, on the other hand, does. Joy sticks around. Joy is true regardless of your circumstances. See, joy is different than optimism. Joy is different than cheerfulness. I like optimistic, cheerful people, but optimism and cheerfulness can break your heart because you can wish all you want to that everything's going to work out okay, and everything doesn't always work out okay. 
Joy is true even when you're filled with sorrow. Joy is true even when you're in the time of grief. Joy is something that sticks around. Now, I'm going to tell you kind of an unusual story. Will doesn't know I'm going to tell this. He probably doesn't remember this. I hope he doesn't. But when he was about three or four, so a little bitty guy, he got mad at me, and I can't remember why. I, I told him no about something, and he got really mad. And his little face got all red, and he said, you idiot. And, and it kind of shocked me. And you know, I knew as soon as he said it, I thought, okay, I can't let him call me an idiot. I can't let my three-year-old call anybody an idiot. I mean, he probably heard his mom say it, so... <laughs> That's a joke of all the people in our family, not my wife. But, um, you know, the funny thing is, it didn't hurt my feelings. It didn't make me mad. Honestly, it made me want to laugh. I thought it was kind of funny. I didn't laugh on the outside because I knew can't encourage this. But I think about that a lot. And not to compare a, an insult from your three-year-old child to the great tragedies of life. But joy enables you to keep things in perspective, the way I did that day with my son. Joy enables you whenever the world throws its sharpest arrows and its, its most deadly daggers at you, you're able to overcome. See, joy enables you to keep things in perspective and move on so that you're not crushed, you end up victorious. You're not bitter, you end up forgiving those who hurt you. You're not trapped in emptiness, you move from sorrow to joy. You move from insult to forgiveness. You move from defeat to victory, that's what joy is. Joy sticks around, and the question is, how do we get there? See, this, this letter to the Philippians is all about joy, and it's ironic because Paul wrote it from prison. Now, Paul wrote this letter around 61 AD, and 12 years before that, he had started this church in Philippi. And here's how it happened. You can read about it in, in the book of Acts. Paul and his friend Silas were on a missionary journey. They ended up in the little Greco-Roman town of Philippi. And the first person they meet there is a Jewish businesswoman named Lydia. And Lydia is a devout Jew. She's looking for the Messiah. And Paul and Silas tell her the Messiah has come. His name is Jesus, and here's what he did. And she becomes a believer. And she says to them, why don't you start meeting in my house? I, I've got a nice house. Why don't, why don't you make this our home base? And, and so from there, Paul and Silas are going through the marketplace trying to meet new people and, and share the gospel. And they meet a slave girl. And this slave girl is possessed by a demon, a demon that enables her to tell people's fortunes. And Paul and Silas come upon her. They recognize what's wrong with her. And so they cast this demon out. This girl is immensely uh, immensely grateful. Suddenly her tormentor is gone. She's mentally healthy again, and she becomes a believer in Christ. Well, the owners of this slave girl who are making money off of her quote-unquote talent are very upset, so they have Paul and Silas beaten with rods and thrown into jail. And so midnight, Paul and Silas are locked in heavy wooden stocks. They're blue, bruised and bleeding, and they're singing hymns, of all things, when suddenly an earthquake hits the jail, the cell doors fling open, their stocks break off, and the jailer wakes up and sees the jail doors open and draws his sword to kill himself. Paul and Silas say, don't do it, we're still here, you're okay. And he immediately falls to his knees and says, what do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to have what you have? And that night, that jailer and his whole family come to know Christ. And so that's the beginning, that's the foundation of the Philippian church. And 12 years later, here's Paul, now in prison in Rome. He's, he, he's stuck there for an extended time, at least two years. He's, he's going to be on trial for his life. 
And he writes this letter to the Philippians because they've sent him a gift. They have sent him some kind of offering. We don't know what it was, but Paul is writing the letter of the Philippians as a thank you note. And you know Paul, Paul can't just say, okay, it was a great size, I'll love it uh, till the day I die. No, he has to tell them what the Lord has laid on his heart. That's who Paul is. And so that's what the book of Philippians is about. And as you read Philippians, if you just sat down today and you could read it in 10 minutes, you would notice how many times Paul uses the word joy or the word rejoice. It's the most joyful book in the whole Bible. And that's ironic because if you look at Paul's life, if you know anything about Paul, you know that from the day he became a believer in Jesus, here's what has happened. He has become despised by the people who used to admire him. He's now considered a traitor to his own race. He's been publicly flogged five times. He's been beaten with rods three times. He's been stoned by an angry mob and left for dead. He's been shipwrecked three times. He's been imprisoned too many days to count. He's lived in constant hardship, constant hunger, constant poverty, and the knowledge that any day now his enemies are going to catch up to him and they're going to take his life. Plus, he's got to live with the constant guilt of knowing that before he became a believer in Christ, he killed Christians. He's got blood on his hands. And yet, he's writing this joyful letter. What business does a guy like this have to be joyful? We're going to find out. We're going to be experts in joy by the time this is over. I hope you can be here each Sunday. Because he starts the letter like he starts all of his letters by giving thanks for his friends. And we usually gloss over this section. We want to get to the controversial parts of Paul's letters. But today I want you to see there is something in here that can show us a path to joy that you need. So start with chapter 1, verse 1. Paul writes and says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. See, that's the first time he uses that word. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is, what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul starts by giving thanks for his friends. He's got joy because of them. But he's not saying, you bring me joy because you're so funny and you're so loyal and you're so good to me. Because if those were the case, if that's all they were to him, then it wouldn't bring him joy now because he's separated from them. He's stuck away from them. That wouldn't bring him joy. What brings him joy, if you read his thanksgiving, is he's thankful for what God is doing in their lives. Essentially, he's saying, I know you. I've known you all along. You're, you're a businesswoman and a slave girl and, and a jailer. And now, look at you. Look what you've become. I've seen you grow over these 12 years. I've seen you do great things. And even better, as verse 6 says, even better, I know what's going to happen. Because the God who started this work of transforming your lives is going to bring it to completion. Do you see what Paul's doing here? 
If I wrote a letter from prison where I was imprisoned for no good cause, if I was a victim of injustice, my letter to you would be, get me the heck out of here. I don't need to be here. I don't deserve to be here. Pray all kinds of fiery demons against my enemies. Get me out of here. Paul's not stuck on himself. He's not focused on his problems. He's focused on his friends specifically on what God is doing in the lives of his friends. And he's joyful because he knows it's going to succeed. And he's joyful because he knows he plays a part in it. As he says in 1 Corinthians 3.9, he says to, the, to another church, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul always saw himself as a co-worker of God. It's sort of like when you were a kid and your dad was working and he'd say, hey, why don't you come help me? He didn't need your help. He wanted you near him. He wanted you to be part of what he was doing. That's what God says to Paul. He says, Paul, come help me. Come join me in this work. I'm transforming these people over here. Why don't you jump in and be a part of it? And Paul takes joy in that. In fact, he took it so seriously to a third church. He wrote in Galatians 4.19, he wrote, my dear children for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And some of you ladies might be saying, what does Paul know about childbirth? Probably nothing, but he's saying it looks painful, it sounds painful, the closest thing I can come up with is the work that I do for the sake of Christ is painful sometimes, it's hard work, but just like childbirth, it's producing something perfect, it's producing something beautiful, and it's worth it. So here's my, here's my point. Here's, here's the point I'm trying to make to you, and here's the sermon in a sentence, all right? If you've been asleep, wake up, because here it is. You ready? We find joy when we invest ourselves in the spiritual growth of other believers. We find joy when we invest in other believers. Now, now there's evangelism too, and Paul was a great evangelist, and we've talked about that other times, and, and we'll talk about that again, and that is a key core value of God's people, but I'm ta- what I'm talking about right here is if you're part of the body of Christ, if you're part of a local church, it is your responsibility to invest in your fellow believers, in encouraging them, in praying for them, in holding them accountable when they need to be confronted, in, in being an inspiration and an example in lifting them up in every way until they become all that they're meant to be in Christ. As Hebrews 10.24 says, we're supposed to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Now, you might be thinking, but wait, I thought that was the preacher's job, and it is. I, I, I am called to do that, and I'm glad to do that, and nothing brings me more joy than that, but that's not all that my job is about. Ephesians 4.11 says this. Paul writes and says, it was he, meaning Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. We get that, right? Jesus calls some people, they don't have ordinary jobs, they serve God full time. That's my calling, that's Nathan's calling, Robert's calling, Christian's calling. We have that calling on our lives, that's great. But here's why. It says, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what is the pastor's job? What is a minister's job? It's not to do the ministry on your behalf. My job is to prepare you for the work God has planned for you in the world. My job is to equip you to be a light to the world. 
And your job is to invest in one another. And you might say, well, that sounds like hard work. I thought you were going to talk to me about joy. Work is a joy when you're doing what God has created you and crafted you and equipped you to do. So think about it this way. Think about something you've done that you're really, really proud of. Maybe, maybe you were an athlete and you won a championship, or maybe you, uh, maybe you planned some big event, a wedding or an anniversary or a birthday, and it came off perfectly, or maybe you cooked this huge meal and everybody came and ate and they all just raved about how good it was, or maybe you learned to play an instrument, or maybe you sang a song publicly, or maybe you taught a class or you acted in a play and you just nailed it, or, or maybe you graduated and you got that degree that you've been working on for so long. Maybe you just leveled up in your favorite video game. Think about something you did that you're really proud of. Now think about what it took to get there. Aren't you excited about the work you did? I mean, when you look back on the process of winning that championship or attaining that accomplishment, and the work you had to do, yes, it was sacrificial. Yes, it was hard. Sometimes it felt maybe like Paul says, like childbirth. Heck, it may have been childbirth that you're thinking of. But wouldn't you do it again? Wasn't that something that you look back on as, with a sense of excitement? And the truth is, sometimes when we get to those great accomplishments that we've been working on, those projects we've been trying to fulfill, and once it's complete, sometimes we enter into a period of deep depression like Alexander the Great, who looked around and wept because there were no more worlds to conquer, don't we sometimes think, now I don't have a purpose anymore? But here's the good news. There's a project far greater than anything I just mentioned that God has equipped you to accomplish, to participate in. And as long as you are a member of a local body of believers, there will always be people you should be investing in. And God has given you unique gifts. Maybe you're an exceptionally bold person and you're the person he uses to confront people who are struggling. I know you're a lot of fun to be around, aren't you? But we need you. Maybe you're just an exceptionally encouraging person. Maybe you're a prayer warrior. Maybe you're incredibly generous. God has gifted you in some unique way to be a person who invests in others and builds them up in the body of Christ. And here's the really good news. When you're working alongside God, when you're working on God's project, you cannot fail because as verse six says, God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. So there's that day that you can look forward to when the Lord returns. That's the day of Christ Jesus and we're all resurrected and we're walking around in these heavenly uh, perfect bodies, complete and, and imperishable and you're gonna walk up upon somebody and you're gonna look at them kind of sideways and you're gonna say, is that you? And he's going to say, yeah. And you're going to say, it looks like you, but you look a lot better than you ever looked before. And he's going to say, same thing about you. And, and you're going to say, it's good to see you. I'm glad you're here. And he's going to say, you know what? I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. God used you to help me become what I am today. And think about how that's going to make you feel. No investment in another human being is ever wasted. No investment in another human being ever goes to waste. Anything you invest in yourself is lost at the end of time. But anything you invest in a fellow human being lasts forever, and you enjoy it forever. So here's my challenge for you today. Invest in someone. And I, I mean, 
Before you walk out of this room, I want you to decide, this is the person I'm going to invest in. And I'm saying somebody who's not related to you, because you already invest in your own family. I want you to stretch, because the more people you invest in, the more joyful you will be. So think of someone, maybe someone you go to Bible study with, or life group with, maybe, maybe a neighbor, maybe a friend, maybe the guy sitting next to you on the pew. You may not even know that guy's name. Today's a good day to find out, because what I'm asking you to do is simply start praying for them. Now, by the way, there are some of you in this room that already do this. You don't need to follow this challenge because you already do this. You lead a life group or you teach a Bible study or you volunteer in our kids' ministry or our student ministry or you teach in the academy. You are already investing in other people. And what I want to say to you today is don't give up. Don't quit. Don't get discouraged because the devil hates your guts and wants with all his heart for you to decide, you know what, I'm tired of this. I'm just not doing this anymore. I'm not doing any good. I I prepare this Bible study every week. Nobody listens. They fall asleep. Trust me, I know how you feel, okay? Don't give up. Don't quit. Galatians says you will reap a harvest if you don't faint. For the rest of us, who aren't in some official ministry position, who probably don't ever think of ourselves this way, today, make a commitment. Write that person's name on your bulletin. Write it in your smartphone and begin praying for them today, daily. Now, what do I pray for them? How do we pray for people we're invested in? That's what verse nine, verses 9 through 11 are about. That's when Paul, in his prayer for the Philippians, finally gets around to asking things. And the Prayers of Paul are so instructive. You can do a great Bible study. If you're looking for a way to grow, just find the prayers and the letters of Paul and study them one by one. And what you'll find is Paul's prayer life was unique. Here's a guy who rarely asked for prayer for himself. And when he did, it was never the kinds of things we would ask for. Mostly he prayed for others. And when you study his prayers, you see how we should be praying for each other too. So look at this, three, three things Paul asked for the Philippians. These are three things we should be asking for the people we're invested in. One is that they would abound in love. If you would have asked me when I was a kid, what does spiritual maturity look like? I would have said, it's someone who goes to church all the time, someone who doesn't cuss, who doesn't get drunk, who doesn't cheat on their spouse, someone who knows the Bible really well and gives to the offering. And I'd say that's spiritual maturity. And all those things are good and all those things are true and all those things are things we should aspire to. But if you would have asked me as a kid, okay, so that's spiritual maturity. Do you know anybody like that? I would have said, yeah. And, and, and if you would have said, do you like those people? I would have said, yeah, some of them. Some of them I don't like very much. Some of them are just mean. In fact, some of the people who exemplified those characteristics most perfectly hated Jesus when he was alive. They're the reason he had to run all the time. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being in church all the time and giving you the offering and knowing the Bible and not cussing. All those things are great, but that's not spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity, from the words of Jesus himself, is to love the Lord and to love your neighbor. If your religion doesn't lead you to love more, then you need to change your religion. You see, the people who are becoming spiritually mature are those people you can look at and say, he's a lot more forgiving than he used to be. I remember when somebody used to say something like they just said to him and he would fly off the handle, but now 
Now he's got a peace about him. Now he doesn't strike back. She's a lot more likely to sacrifice for her, for the people around her, than she used to be. What is love? Love is selfless giving for someone else's benefit. Spiritual maturity is when you so consistently, selflessly give for someone else's benefit, it becomes your calling card. It's what you're known for. And not because you're asking for credit. In fact, the person who's really growing in spiritual maturity, you have to basically catch them doing loving things because they do it secretly. They're not looking for credit. They're not looking for the spotlight. So pray for the people you're invested in that they would abound in love and they will find joy and they will be a, a catalyst of joy, a current of joy. Secondly, pray that they would know what is best that they would know what is best. You know that life is basically a series of decisions. Every day you make decisions from what do I eat to bre for breakfast to bigger things. Every day. And your life is made up of those decisions. Most of them are minor. Some of them are major. But all of them combined decide the direction of your life. And the Bible has a word for people who are good at making those decisions, who are successful at life because they always choose the right path. And that word is wise. Wisdom is choosing correctly. As has been said before, knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in fruit salad, right? So it's practical knowledge. It's knowledge that works. It's making the right decisions. I like a tomato as much as anybody, not in my dang fruit salad, okay? So pray for the people you're invested in that they would make right decisions, that they would know what is best. And then third, pray that they would be pure and blameless. The word pure in Greek is an interesting word. It's actually two Greek words smashed together. The first word is the word for sunlight in Greek, and the other one is the word for to judge or inspect. So purity in Greek literally means that you can hold it up to the sunlight and inspect it for flaws. Blameless is what it sounds like. It's a person who they live in such a way no one can find fault with them. So the people you're invested in, pray that they would become pure and blameless. And one thing I've learned, when you begin to pray this way, when you begin to pray for them to abound in love, to grow in wisdom, to grow in their personal character and integrity, God begins to show you ways that you can be part of that process. He brings you into contact with that person so that you can encourage them, sometimes confront them, and in various ways help them grow. And he says, this will happen on the day of Christ Jesus. You know what that's talking about, right? That's talking about that day I talked about earlier, when Christ returns and this whole world is renewed. And as I said before, every moment you spent, every thought you wasted, every dollar you wasted on selfish stuff, on temporary stuff, you're going to regret it in that day. But every moment, every dollar, every thought, every prayer you spent on other people, you're going to rejoice over because that is an investment that pays eternal dividends. So back to, my, back to the story of my son when he was three. Why didn't I get mad when my son insulted me? Well, because I was invested in his life. He wasn't some random kid. He was my son. I was invested in him. When he called me that, that name, I knew we've got to do something about this. We've got to change this. I was invested in his life. I knew where he was. I knew not to expect more of him than that, but I knew that later on in life, I wanted him to grow into a place where he could control his temper, where he did not fly off the handle. See, when you're invested in the lives of others, 
It brings you joy in three different ways. Three different ways. Number one, it brings you joy because it gets your mind off of yourself. It lifts you out of that little tepid hot tub of your own self-pity that it's so fun to stew in. And you climb out of that hot tub and you get out into the world paying attention to the lives of others. Secondly, you find yourself cooperating with God in his work instead of fighting against him. God made you to invest in others. Our problem as Christians, and if you want to know why so many Christians are unhappy, I think it's because we're fighting against God to get what we want. We're playing games with God with religion, saying, okay, God, I go to church, and I give money, and and I I say no to the bad vices, so come on, give me the life that I want. And God says, well, I love you. I want this life for you. And you say, no, 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 this is what I want, Lord. This is the life I want. I don't want to invest in other people. I want these things. This, This is my bucket list. Come on, God. Let me ask you something. When you were a kid and you fought against your parents for what you wanted, did that ever work out for you? It did not work out well for me, ever. And it's not going to work out in your relationship with God either. When you're investing in the lives of others, you're working alongside of him, not fighting against him, and, and joy ensues. And then third, all right, we're in church, right? We can be real. The third reason investing in others helps bring you joy is because it helps you see people through the eyes of God because people are the worst. They're annoying. They're obnoxious. They're terrible. Wouldn't life be so much better without them? Wouldn't it? I guarantee you this week, every single one of us, maybe some of you today, every single one of us is going to bump up against a person that we're just convinced is sent straight from hell to ruin our lives, to steal our joy. But when you invest in people, You start to see them through the eyes of God, and you don't see them as an emissary of the devil. You start to see them as a failed sinner, a recovering sinner, just like you, still under God's construction, and you see the end of the journey in mind, just like I saw with my son. He's going to grow into something wonderful, and I get to be a part of that. That's the joy of being his dad. You get to invest, and you and I get to invest in the lives of people all around us, and not just just write them off for what they are now, but envision what they will become through the grace of God. And God, who starts a good work in them and in us, will bring it to completion. See, the good news is Jesus invested in you so heavily, he gave his whole life, his whole life. And his investment didn't end there. It didn't end at the cross. It didn't end the day you prayed the sinner's prayer. It didn't end the day you got baptized. It's still going on. He's still investing in you day by day by day. And someday that project will be complete and you will stand in the presence of your Savior, Jesus Christ. And here's the great thing. The first time you ever see him with your eyes, he'll look upon perfection. He'll look upon a project that he has completed and he'll say, well done.